are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So we are now winding our way toward the end of this current church year. With the beginning of Advent just two weeks away, The lectionary has been moving us progressively through the gospel according to Mark over these many long weeks of ordinary time. Tonight we have our last reading in that series. Next Sunday is marked as the Feast of the Reign of Christ, and that calls upon the gospel according to John this year, right before we shift to Advent. But I do have to say... It's quite a way to end our tour through Mark with this bang, Jesus teaching this apocalyptic kind of stuff to his disciples from the Mount of Olives, from where they can see the temple. The lectionaries had us read the opening eight verses of the 13th chapter of Mark, a chapter which has often been called a little apocalypse. It's only little, really, when compared to the book of Revelation, which is a long apocalypse. But it does run the full 36 verses of Mark chapter 13. And its content is really rather dire. Then again, Jesus could be rather dire in his teachings and his warnings to the people, couldn't he? There's lots of comfort and hope in the Gospels. In so many of the parables, so many of the teachings. But there is that current that runs right through it all that says things are going to get pretty intense before it's all done. Now this teaching begins as Jesus and his disciples leave the temple. Right after watching that poor widow place her two small coins into the temple treasury. As I said last week, Jesus clearly lauds her for her gift. Yet there is this undercurrent in his teaching that's deeply critical of the temple machinery. Now as they exit that enormous place, one of the disciples is still in complete awe. And he says, look teacher, what large stones, what large buildings. This is fantastic. To which Jesus responds, You see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Which is hardly the answer that that unnamed disciple would have been expecting. Though if he had been paying deeper attention to Jesus all the way along, maybe he wouldn't have been all that surprised. Grand and beautiful as the temple was, Jesus is saying to him, it ain't going to last. Then off they go to the Mount of Olives, right across from the temple. They can see it. Peter, James, John, and Andrew quietly ask him for a little bit more. Tell us, what's this about? When will this be? What are the signs of it? And so in he launches. Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he. 
They will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes in various places, famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs, and it's also just the beginning of a whole lot of material that the lectionary actually doesn't have us read tonight. Yet you can hear the tone, right? A crisis is coming, he's saying to those disciples. And through Mark, he's saying it to the whole of the early church. Now, it's the view of N.T. Wright that the crisis Jesus has immediately in view is first and foremost the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, which happened in the year 70 A.D. The consensus position is that Mark was writing in the early to mid-60s, so prior to the destruction of the temple. Matthew and Luke, on the other hand, are writing after the year 70, after the temple's been destroyed by the empire. So there's slightly different textures to each of the Gospels as they deal with the crisis, one anticipating the other two knowing. But all three of these writers agree that this was a huge moment in the life of both Christianity and Judaism. The visible symbol centered in Jerusalem is gone. And now both Christians and Jews will need to find other ways to keep faith alive and vibrant. How do you do it without that visible center? And so Dr. Wright offers the following. Many people have read Mark 13 and its parallels in Matthew and Luke as a chapter mainly about the end of the world, which it certainly isn't. There are passages where Jesus draws on the cosmic language of Scripture to talk about the future, giving rise to the belief that the whole chapter is about the large-scale future of the cosmos. But as the present section indicates, the main apparent subject is nothing so grandiose, certainly not on the surface. The main subject remains the fate of the temple in Jerusalem and of Jesus' followers in the time leading up to the temple's demise. Incidentally, N.T. Wright is not the only biblical scholar who takes that view by no means. What he's pointing to is the fact that those early Christians faced a cataclysmic crisis when the empire began to crash down hard. First on them, because the Christians were persecuted under the emperor Nero, and then on the city that was held as kind of a spiritual center, particularly for Jewish Christians in the Middle East. Even for those Gentile Christians, though, living in far-flung places like Corinth, Thessaloniki, even Rome itself, the news that Christians were being crushed in Jerusalem, and that the very temple itself had been destroyed would have been unnerving, unsettling to the core. What does it mean when the city 
and the temple, Jesus himself would have known and walked through and taught in and died just outside of. What does it mean when that city is flattened? Where now do we go and how do we believe? It's gone. And yet there would have been this reminder carried to them by Mark. Then by Matthew and Luke that said, you can't be surprised or unnerved by this. This has been coming for a good long time. And Jesus was so clear about that when he sat with his disciples on the Mount of Olives that day, right after they'd watched a poor widow put her last two little coins into the treasury. The temple, he's saying, is spiritually bankrupt. And even this beloved city of Jerusalem has seen its day. The movement of the people of God is now so clearly where they are, where they live, whether that's in Judea or Ephesus or Galatia or Rome or wherever. In a sense, it was the critical moment at which the church was fully and utterly unleashed into the wider world. In spite of all the sorrow that accompanied the destruction of Jerusalem, it was a kind of birthing that was happening. Remember, he said, this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Birth pangs are painful, but they also lead to a new beginning. There is a long story, a winding and sometimes very bumpy and troubled story that stems from those days right up to our own days. We realize how badly off track the church could sometimes get, crawling into bed with empires, allying itself with nation-building in a supposedly good society, being more interested in wealth and success than in what Jesus actually taught Yet remarkably, all the way through the story of the church, there have always been those who could still hear his word, respond to his presence, feel the depth of his call to actually be the body of Christ. And so Christ's church moved forward. Sometimes limping, sometimes stumbling off course, sometimes dancing with the deepest delight in God's grace, we moved our way along. I wonder though, are we limping again right now in these days? This pandemic has been very odd in the life of the church. Two years ago, On a Sunday like this, there might have been 150 people in this building. And maybe another 15 or even 20 participating at 4 o'clock in the family service. Then by the middle of March 2020, we were hearing all this news of the impact of the pandemic in places like New York City. And our bishop had instructed us to stop sharing the common communion cup. To avoid shaking hands at the sharing of the peace with people from outside of our own households. 
The anxiety was growing on the final Sunday before we were ordered to shut down and move entirely virtual. There were only about 80 people here in the building. And then came those long, long months of nothing but live streaming. Long months stretching from March 2020 to mid-July 2021. There was a moment in September of 2020 that we thought it's, it's over, it's ending, we're planning towards regathering. Then came the second wave. When we did reopen our doors this past July, we kept up the live streaming so that people could attend, even if they weren't able to come into the church building, either because of their own medical condition, physical condition, or because of other age or infirmity or just distance. And so we continue to welcome people in that way. We're now ranging between, say, 50, 60 people in the building on our average Sundays, plus those who take part in the live stream, but it's still very different from having 150 folks here. So yes, there is a bit of a limp in the way that we walk these days. And yet, as N.T. Wright offers in his closing comments on this passage that we read tonight, quote, Jesus told us we would need patience to hold on and see the thing through. We should not be surprised if we are called through whatever circumstances to practice that virtue of patience however unfashionable it may be in our hurried and anxious world. May God grant us that virtue of patience, courage to move forward as we can, and a sense of trust as we face all of the ups and downs of life, wherever they come from, in this pandemic, or from the realities of simply being human. Patience, courage, trust. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening.